We're in the last two chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12. When we conclude next week, uh, or after next week, I want to get us into the book of Nehemiah as we anticipate where the Lord is leading us in this coming year and how we will build uh, up Beth Ariel from where we are now. But uh, these last two chapters are so significant in the book of Daniel. I want to take some time for us to look at it and to study it together. Chapter 11 is the heart and soul of this final prophetic vision or information that Daniel is given. In fact, it covers the entire chapter, all the way to chapter 12, the first four verses, about 45 verses or so of prophetic revelation given to Daniel. It's the longest revelation he is given in the book. It's also the most complicated in all the revelation. It's also the most important that is revealed to Daniel. This prophecy actually begins in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we learn that Daniel was praying for some 20-something days. He was mourning over Israel. We're not told what he was mourning about, but I suggest that he was mourning the fact that the temple had not yet been completed or continued in its rebuilding. Remember, this vision is coming in the third year of Cyrus's reign. That means the Jewish people had already been returning from the Babylonian captivity for three years. In their first year of return, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was then the governor, and Joshua, who was appointed high priest, they began the rebuilding of the temple by laying its foundation. This went on for about eight or nine months, and then the work stopped. Either the people were discouraged, but for one reason or another, the work was discontinued. And it hadn't been continued for another two or three years. Daniel now, knowing the situation in Israel, perhaps is mourning over the fact that the temple is still not being uh, rebuilt and that the work has stopped. He then he begins to pray. And as he prays, the message does not come to him immediately, but rather an angel appears to Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. And what the angel reveals to us is that there is a spiritual conflict going on behind the scenes that we can't see. The angel tells Daniel that from the very first moment you began to pray, God heard your prayers and he sent me to you with the information I'm going to give you. However, in root, I was detained by an evil spirit, a fallen angel, a demon. And I was in battle with him for these 20 some odd days. And in fact, I couldn't get through to you because this fallen angel was so powerful that it necessitated Michael, the archangel, to come and to my aid. Michael has come. And now I am freed up to come to you to tell you what God wants revealed to you. So in the last verse of chapter 11, we, we read that as this angel is speaking to Daniel, he said, do you know why I've come to you? Verse 20 of chapter 10. Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, an evil spirit assigned to the Persian empire. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. 
another fallen angel assigned to the Greek empire. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against these fallen angels except Michael, your prince, which tells us Michael the archangel is particularly assigned for the protection of the Jewish nation, of whom Daniel is a member. And he says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. In verse 2, Now then I will tell you the truth. Now the chapter 11 is the revelation that the angel is to give to Daniel. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, is the postscript and final message Daniel has uh, for all of us. So chapters 10, 11, and 12 constitute this final revelation. Now chapter 11 can be divided into three parts. Take a look at them with me for a moment. First of all, in chapter 11, beginning at verse 2, going down to verse 20, Daniel is told the history of the ancient world beginning from the time of Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, up until the raising up of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is one of the Greco-Syrian rulers of whom uh, is, is central in the whole story of Hanukkah and the Maccabees. So Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 to verse 20, tells us of the history leading up to Antiochus Epiphanes, beginning with Cyrus, the Persian ruler, on into the Greek Empire, and then into Antiochus Epiphanes. In chapter 11, verse 21, through verse 35, we are given the history of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. And then the third part of the vision is found in verses 36 through 45, in which we are introduced to the final world ruler of history prior to the return of the Messiah and the establishing of the Messianic age and the Messiah's kingdom. In a way, this chapter gives us a panoramic view of history from the time of the Persian Empire until the fall of the last Gentile Empire until the establishing of the Messiah's empire, the Messianic kingdom. So is everybody with me? Those are the three sections of this passage. It's very complicated, but it's so critical and important to the rest of biblical prophecy that is found and to what we've already been told. So let's take a look at this. We're not going to go into every detail, but let me give you a synopsis and an overview. So take a look at verses 2 through 4. The vision opens up with... The revelation given about Persia. Now then, I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth. Cyrus was the first king. He tells us three more kings in Persia will appear, and then a fourth. The fourth king following Cyrus is none other than Xerxes I, also known as Ajuaris. He's the king during the time of Purim in the book of Esther. He reigns from 485 to 465 before the time of Messiah. He's important in the Persian Empire and into world history because he attempts to expand the Persian Empire westward into Europe. To do that, he must overtake Greece. He moves his armies into Greece. 
But the Greek Empire, or at that time the city-states, is growing in power. The Greeks meet Xerxes I, Ajuarus, his troops, on the island of Cyprus, at the port city of Salamis, one of the cities that Paul will visit during his first missionary journey when he leaves from Antioch of Syria and heads to Cyprus and Salamis. From there, he will set sail to go north to Asia Minor. This is a port city. What the Greeks did was destroyed the Persian navy. They had an extensive navy. And as a result of the destruction of their navy, they could no longer transport their troops from the mainland to the island. That left about 100,000 troops, according to Herodotus, on the island of Cyprus. And the Greeks decimated these forces. The Persians then had to remove their troops that were now in Asia Minor on the coast waiting for transport. And Herodotus tells us, well, he's to be, whether he's to be believed or not, we don't know, but Herodotus tells us the Persians had a one million man army that was stranded on the mainland. Their navy was decimated. Their troops had to be removed back to Persia. And the expansion into Europe and Greece was halted. He was not the only one that attempted to attack the Greeks. The Persian emperor before Xerxes was Darius the Great, not to be confused with Darius the Mede in 536 or so. But Darius the Great moved his armies westward into Greece, and they were stopped at the city of Marathon. And of course, we know that word because we speak of running marathons, 26-mile races in the Olympics and in various cities. Named after this battle, because a Greek messenger, when he saw and heard the news that the Greeks were victorious and they held back the Persians, he ran some 26 miles without stopping back to the city of Athens, reported the good news to the Greeks, Joy and rejoicing broke out in the streets. And this man, because of that marathon that he ran, fell and died of exhaustion. That was some 20 years before. So in the Greek mind, they think of the Persians as that empire that continued to attempt to annihilate us and destroy us. So it is no wonder that about... 150 years later or so, around 330, when Alexander the Great rises to power, one of the first things he wants to do is to destroy the Persians. Now, if you look at Daniel chapter 11, we're told in verse 3, then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And that mighty king is none other than Alexander the Great. We've seen these images before, haven't we? In Daniel chapter 8, the ram, the he-goat, were images of Persia and Greece. In Daniel chapter 2, the upper body torso of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, saw, and the thighs and the midsection were symbolic of Persia and Greece as well. Here we're seeing it reiterated another time. And here we're told that Alexander would be the one that would destroy the Persian Empire and expand his empire to the west and to the east. 
But there's one thing we learn in this passage that we did not learn from Daniel in the preceding passages that spoke about the Greek empire. Take a look at this in verse 4. It says that after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled toward the four winds of heaven. And we know that Alexander's empire was divided up the north, south, east, and west entities, to his four generals. We saw that earlier when in Daniel chapter 8, we're told that the notable horn of the he-goat symbolizing Alexander the Great would be broken. And when it was broken, four horns would come up. And they symbolized the four different generals who parceled out the four elements of Alexander's empire. We've seen that before. But what we haven't seen before is what he goes on to tell Daniel. And he says, and it will not go to his descendants. In other words, here now we know that none of Alexander the Great's descendants will inherit his kingdom. In fact, his wives and all of his children were murdered. And his four generals then parceled out his kingdom. Now, if you look at verse 5 through verse 20, we now have the history of the parceled out empire of Alexander, the conflicts that raged for the remaining 150, 170 years between the different generals and their descendants. Two are most prominent. Ptolemy, who inherited the southern portion of Alexander the Great's empire, encompassing Egypt, and Seleucus, who inherited the northern part of Alexander's the empire, which encompasses what is today now known as Syria and that region, between the land of Israel uh, between them. Now, there are over, commentators have told us, 135 prophecies in this passage that have been fulfilled. We can't look at them all. One commentator has spent 40 pages to speak about those prophecies that cover just 10 verses, 40 pages. It's a lot of information, a lot of stuff to try to learn and to get under your skin and into your mind. So we can't go through all of this. But I do want to point out one particular prophecy that is rather intriguing to me. I hope it will be to you. Look at verse 5. We're told that the king of the south, Ptolemy I, the first, descend, the first general that inherits the southern portion of Alexander's empire. It says the king of the south will become strong. But one of his, of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. So we move immediately from Ptolemy I to Ptolemy II. And then we're told, after some years, they will become allies. We know from history that Ptolemy II had attempted and was successful in bringing about an alliance between his empire in the south and the northern kingdom of Syria, the Greco-Syrian entity, the Seleucid entity in the north. The king at that time was Antiochus II. So Ptolemy II is in Egypt, Antiochus II is in the north. Ptolemy II was very powerful. He forces an alliance between Antiochus in the north, Antiochus II. He does this by forcing a marriage. He forces his daughter Bernice to marry Antiochus II. The only problem is Antiochus II is already married. So he's forced to divorce his wife, Laodicea. He divorces his wife, is married to Bernice. They have an infant son. 
About two years or so goes by, and Ptolemy II dies. When Ptolemy II dies, Antiochus II concludes, there's no reason why I have to remain faithful to Bernice, his daughter, for he can no longer force me to be married to his daughter any longer, for he's dead. So what does Antiochus II do? He divorces Bernice and he remarries his first wife, Laodicea. Laodicea has not been happy about having been divorced. So she poisons her husband, Antiochus II, and she poisons Bernice, to whom she was married, and then she kills the infant son. Now take a look at Daniel chapter 11. It says, the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north, make an alliance, but she will not return her power. That's Bernice. And he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father. That's who dies, Ptolemy II, and the one who who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of of the north and enter his fortress, he will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. And then for some years, he'll leave the king of the north alone. When Laodicea kills Bernice and their daughter and her husband, Bernice has a brother who inherited his father's kingdom in the south. What Daniel is being told is that another king in the south, none other than Bernice's brother, is not happy with the fact that Laodicea killed his sister. So in taking revenge, he moves his troops into Syria, and he's victorious over the Syrians, the Greco-Syrians. And as Daniel is told, he carries off silver, gold, and precious idols and vessels. Josephus tells us that when the brother attacked Syria, he carried off 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and a variety of idols made out of gold and silver that were scattered about in the various cities of the uh, Seleucid Empire in Syria. That's just one of many prophecies in this section section that were fulfilled in the very minutest of details. It is for that reason that many believed and concluded that the book of Daniel must be a later book, because how in the world could Daniel know such details? And of course, we know there isn't a God to reveal this to Daniel. So as a consequence, liberal scholars have said, well, this must have been written after the fact for Daniel or an alleged Daniel to easily have restated what was now history. But the only problem with that has been in 1948, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated from approximately 200 years before the time of Messiah. By the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls are gonna be up at Shepherd of the Hills. So if you've never seen them, you ought to do so. In fact, I remember for many decades, the Israelis would never l- allow the Dead Sea Scrolls or, to be out of their country. 
And now, for whatever reason, they are giving permission for part of the leafs of the scrolls to be uh, circulated throughout our country. So it's going to be up there, I think, next week or the week after. It's there now. It's there now. The Dead Sea Scrolls include the book of Daniel, which dates around 200. And the events that the book of Daniel is writing about occur only some 30 to 50 to 70 years before. And the problem with that is that's not enough time, especially in the ancient world, for an ancient document to be written, to be widely disseminated, and then to be considered to be of a sacred sort that it would be included in the canon of inspired literature that is God-breathed. So how did those that copied, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls are copies of previous copies. So they're getting this from documents that precede 200, right? Dead Sea Scrolls are 200 years before Messiah, but they are copies of documents that were written even sooner, earlier. So there's not enough time for the book of Daniel to be incorporated into the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date from the year 200, if they're only relating information that occurred so soon uh, after they were acknowledged to be divinely inspired. But liberal scholars don't care about facts. They just don't want to believe there's a God of miracles who can supernaturally reveal what will take place to those to whom he decides to, and in this case, Daniel. Now, let's move forward to verse 21. The rest of this section deals with the conflict between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the, in the south, until in verse 21, we have the manifestation of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, the glorious one, as he surnamed himself, he's a very humble man, and whom the Jewish people renamed Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And so in Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 35 or so, we have the exploits of Antiochus Epiphanes, how he would rise to power by means of deceit, and how, what he would do with that power. Now, I just want to look at verse 29. Because at verse 29, we're told that at an appointed time, well, appointed by whom? Appointed by God. God is always in control of everything that goes on. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. Nothing happens apart from his will. Though these world rulers think they are in control, ultimately it is God who is in control. And so at the appointed time, verse 29, Antiochus will invade Egypt, the south. This is around 165 or so. We've moved up in time. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Because in previous invasions, he had been fairly successful. But in this particular invasion, Daniel is being told, he would not be so fortunate. Why? In verse 30, ships on the western coastland, or more literally, ships of Kittim. Kittim was an ancient name for the island of Cyprus. The ships that were anchored on the island of Cyprus at this time were the vessels of Rome because their trade was coming from Egypt, which was the breadbasket of Europe, 
and they would be shipped from Egypt to Cyprus and from Cyprus along Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, and over to Rome, providing food sources to the Roman Empire. And so Daniel is being told that when Antiochus Epiphanes goes to invade the south, it will be ships of Kittim, that must be Rome, that will be adverse to him. Notice what he says. Ships of Kittim or western coastlands will oppose him. He will lose heart. And what we do know, according to Josephus as well as Herodotus, that when Antiochus Epiphanes marched his troops down into what is today the Sinai Peninsula, a Roman messenger by the name of Gaius Papilas Lanus, I think is what his name was, L-A-E-N-A-S, that he was a Roman messenger that came out to Antiochus and inquired what Antiochus' intentions were. The Romans were concerned because they, as a growing power, were not going to allow their breadbasket, Egypt, to fall to the Syrians in the north. Antiochus said, listen, I need some time before I can tell you what my intentions were. He wanted to buy time to gain more troops, more allies, in order to continue his invasion and his campaign. But the Roman messenger was not so foolish as to allow for that time, and he drew his sword out, and in the sand he put a circle around Antiochus, and he told him he had until he moved out of that circle to allow Rome to know what his intentions were. And if... He failed to tell them Rome would declare war on Syria. Antiochus could not afford to wage a war on two fronts, being in Syria toward Asia Minor, where Rome was growing, or in the south against Ptolemy and whatever Roman troops would be employed there. So he retreated from Egypt back to Syria. But what Daniel tells us is, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. Daniel is being told that his anger, his fury, his revenge would be taken out on the Jewish people, on the people lying between Egypt and Syria in the north. Notice what he tells us. He says he will return. He will show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. We're now being told that there will be division among the Jews. There will be some who will fight against Antiochus. There will be others who will be complicitous with him. And so we're told that there will be a division among the Jewish people. Some of those people will become corrupted, verse 12, because they will align themselves with Antiochus Epiphanes. But others who know their God will firmly resist him. So this tells us that those that were aligned with the Maccabees are ones that knew their God. While we're not told in the book of Maccabees or from extraneous sources of history that the Maccabees were believers in God and faithful to him, Daniel tells us that is exactly what their actions reveal. But the people who know their God will resist him. Look at verse 33. Now those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall fall by the sword or be burned or captured. And when they fall, they will receive some help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless. Here's the key phrase, until the time of the end. 
So what Daniel is being told is there will be an immediate conflict between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Jewish people. We know from other sources, Daniel 8, which parallels this, that the Jewish people who revolt will be victorious and will destroy the Greco-Roman, the Syria or Greco-Syrian Empire. And in seven years, they will destroy the attacks of Antiochus Epiphanes. Daniel is seeing that. But now something unique is introduced to us because he now tells us that in some respect, this particular ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, and what he did has something to do with the end of time. Look at verse 35. He says, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, will go from this point on, will go through a period of refining, a period of purification until the time of the end. So this has some relevance to the end of time. And the time of the end is marked by the establishment of the Messianic kingdom that brings to an end all Gentile kingdoms. The last Gentile kingdom will be led by a ruler, an emperor, who in some ways is similar to Antiochus Epiphanes. Because what he's just told us about Antiochus Epiphanes has something to do with the time of the end. But it's not just there that this is stated. Turn over to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And uh, I just want to find the passage. Look at verse 45. It says, yet he will come to his end. No one will help him. But let me come back. Oh, here it is. Verse 40. At the time of the end. The king of the south will engage him in battle. So I just want you to notice, look at verse 35. Somehow Antiochus Epiphanes has something to do with the time of the end. Look at verse 40, at the time of the end. Look at chapter 12. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, close up, seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. So the words that Daniel is giving has some relevance to the time of the end. So in chapter 11, verses 36, through the end of the chapter, the focus now is on an upcoming world ruler who will be the ruler at the time of the end. He will be the last of the Gentile rulers. Daniel's been told, Nebuchadnezzar saw in the image, and Daniel saw in chapter 7, chapter 8, the images of the animals, Daniel chapter 8, the he-goat, the ram, He saw the Babylonian kingdom. He saw the Persian kingdom. He saw the Greek kingdom. He saw the Roman kingdom. He saw this ten-toed kingdom. Chapter 7, it's a ten-horned kingdom. It's a kingdom at the end of time. And now we're told that kingdom will be ruled by one who is mirrored by Antiochus Epiphanes. That emperor, that king, that kingdom will come to an end when the Messiah returns. As Daniel, as Nebuchadnezzar saw and Daniel interpreted, Daniel chapter 2, there is a stone that smashes the feet of the statue and it crumbles and falls. And from that stone, a mountain emerges and the kingdom of God is established, the messianic kingdom. So what Daniel is seeing is the last of the Gentile kingdoms, the times of the Gentiles. 
the end of Gentile dominance over the Jewish people. It will occur when the Messiah comes and establishes his own kingdom. That one that is spoken of in verses 36 through 45 is the false Messiah, the anti-Messiah, the counterfeit Messiah about whom Paul refers to as the man of sin that the book of Revelation speaks about in great detail. Daniel is seeing that or being told about it. Now, with that in mind, and Daniel tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes would have set up the abomination that makes desolate in verse 31 or 32 or so. In verse 31. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, fortunately, we have one who gives us some insight into what Daniel is talking about. One whose word can be trusted without any question whatsoever. That one is none other than our Messiah himself, Yeshua. So I want to show you something. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. When you turn to Matthew chapter 24, also put your finger in Luke chapter 21. Now, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, and for that matter, Mark chapter 13, are the three sections in which Messiah tells us prophetically about what is yet to take place in history. It's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. That is that teaching that Messiah provided when he was on the Mount of Olives. Now, I want you to look at Matthew 24 first. In Matthew chapter 24... Yeshua with his disciples are looking at the temple. It says in verse 1, Yeshua left the temple, was walking away when his disciples came up to him. And they called his attention to the building, the temple. And they said, do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, Messiah says. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Yeshua is telling us the temple would be destroyed. This prompted the disciples to ask Messiah three questions. Take a look at them. Verse 3. As Yeshua was now sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they asked him, number one, when will this happen? That is the destruction of the temple. Secondly, what will be the sign of your coming? And thirdly, What will be the sign or the indication or the time of the end of the age? There's Daniel's phrase. Now, Matthew does not record Yeshua answering all three questions. The first question the disciples ask, when will this happen, the destruction of the temple? Matthew doesn't answer or record Yeshua's answer at all. Doesn't answer that for us. But if you look at Luke chapter 21... It's there that Yeshua's answer to that question is provided. Not all the writers of Scripture record everything Yeshua says at any one particular time. And sometimes Yeshua repeats himself, and at different occasions, you you see Yeshua said similar things to what he said previously. Here's an instance where Matthew records the questions the the disciples had, but he obviously was not really that concerned with the first question. He was concerned with the last two, the sign of the end of the age, the sign of Messiah's coming. So he doesn't tell us, what did Yeshua say about the destruction of the temple? However, Luke does record that. So look at Luke chapter 21. He tells us in verse 20, 
when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. So there's the answer to the first question. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? When you see it surrounded by armies, know that it's going to be destroyed. And then he tells them what to do. Flee to the mountains. Now, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 24, we have the two remaining questions. You can read more in Luke, and you'll see more of what Yeshua says about the destruction of the temple. But in Matthew chapter 24, there are two other questions that Matthew records Yeshua answering. The first question that is listed as being asked in this regard is, what will be the sign of your coming? But Matthew does not record Yeshua answering that question first. He records him answering that question second. So if you look at Matthew chapter 24, he answers that question in verse 30. So in verse 30 it says, at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So he's answering the question, what will be the sign of your coming? And he tells them in verse 30, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man, here it is, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So what is the sign of the Son of Man's coming? The Shekinah glory. When the Shekinah glory appears, I'm on my way. And it will appear after some preceding events that we will read in a moment. So Luke records the answer to the first question. When will the temple be destroyed? When you see, it has to be in the time of the disciples. He's telling them, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. No, it is going down and exit. Go to the mountains. Luke 21. In answer to the second question, what, or the third question, what will be the sign of your coming? Matthew 24, verse 30. The sign of the Son of Man will appear after events that lead up to his coming, and it will constitute the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. So that leaves one last question. What will be the sign of the, or what will be the the coming of the end of the age? That's the first answer Matthew records. Look at verse 4. He's answering the question. What will be indicators that we're at the end of time? He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, will deceive many. This didn't happen in the first century. Didn't happen up until the fall of Jerusalem. This is toward the end of the age. It will take time for many who will become false messiahs. He says, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. That didn't happen in the first century. It happens later in history, later in time. In fact, he says, nation will rise up against nation. The disciples never saw nations rising up against nations. This is something that will occur toward the end of time. In fact, some understand this to be a euphemism for worldwide conflict. That doesn't happen until the 20th century. Do we have worldwide conflict? Up until the 20th century, you had isolated conflicts, European conflicts, conflicts in Asia, conflicts in the Middle East, but they were not international conflicts until World War I, World War II, where there were nation against nation. Look what else he says. Kingdoms will rise up against kingdoms. He says there will be famines, there will be earthquakes. Here's the key phrase in verse 8. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Yeshua is telling us that wars and conflicts of a universal nature Famines, the result of wars, 
earthquakes, the world just having topographical changes, will begin to increase and intensify as we get closer to the time of the end. They are like birth pangs. What are birth pangs? As the child is nearing birth, the pain gets more intense, more severe, and more frequent. So some people look at this and say, there's always been wars, there's always been earthquakes, there's always been famines. But that's not what Yeshua is saying. What he's saying is they will become more frequent, more severe, more intense. That's what he's talking about, the intensity of them, the frequency of them, not just the fact of them. So we look at our world. Can we see the intensification of violence and war and conflict? Can we see the intensification of man's inhumanity to man, exhibited by famine and hunger and disease on a worldwide scale? Can we see the intensification of topographical changes, weirdness in our land with uh, proliferation of earthquakes and of hurricanes and of storms And of all those kinds of things that go on in our world. That's what Yeshua is telling us we need to be looking for. But he goes on. He says, then you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death. That didn't happen to the disciples in the first century. Yes, they suffered for their faith. But Yeshua is talking now about a worldwide attack on believers in Messiah. And particularly these Jewish believers. Look what he goes on to say. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear, deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm, here it is again, to the end will be saved. The good news of the messianic kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So here it is, verse 13. So when, uh, thir, thir, 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Yeshua himself is telling us Daniel prophesied prophetically. He was a prophet. He's telling us that when he speaks of the abomination set up by Antiochus Epiphanes, it relates somehow to the, wor- the last world ruler who he says will do just what Antiochus Epiphanes did and then the end will come and I will return to put an end to the last Gentile ruler and kingdom that dominates my people Israel. Yeshua goes on to say that he will send out his angels to the four corners of the earth And they will regather his chosen people, Israel, back to the land. So that when he returns, his people will march in with him, following their king and being established as a nation under his leadership, under his rulership. Turn back to Daniel. So Daniel has seen the panoramic view of history from the time of the Persians through the Greeks, to Antiochus Epiphanes, 
to the last world ruler who will be established in the world and whom the Messiah will defeat. In verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who protects your people, he's talking to Daniel, he protects Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And while there is much struggle for Israel to yet go through, Daniel tells us, they will experience great deliverance. This must be about a future time of the end, because if you look at Daniel 12, he talks about right after, I'm not reading this verse, but the next verse speaks about the resurrection. Where he says, those that sleep in the dust of the earth will be raised. Some to everlasting righteousness, some to judgment. There'll be a judgment following this. And there'll be everlasting life and everlasting separation from him that will follow. It must have to do with the end of time. So what does this all mean? For me, I would say this. What's the takeaway in all this? The first is God's word can be trusted implicitly. 135 prophecies in this section. We just looked at one with Bernice and saw with what detail it was fulfilled. We looked back on a life of Antiochus Epiphanes briefly and saw it fulfilled to the letter. God's word is trustworthy and sure. And so if that is so, we ought to be in it on a regular basis. We ought to be trusting in it on a regular basis. We ought to be obeying it on a regular basis. That would stand to reason. The second thing this says to me is not only is God's word trustworthy, but God himself is trustworthy. For he said that these things would come about and they have, which means the things that will yet come about will yet come about. So God himself is trustworthy. His word is trustworthy, but he is trustworthy. And so we need not ever be despaired or lose hope. For his word is sure and he is sure. And the last thing that I take from this is that our work in the Lord is never in vain. Because ultimately, it will lead others to see what our eyes have been opened to see. And many, as as Daniel says, who turn others to righteousness, he says, will be greatly blessed. We sang earlier, what an opportunity to proclaim the good news like Messiah himself. And what a joy to be ones who are characterized as shining bright as the stars, as Daniel depicts them who lead many to righteousness. I want to be one that would lead many to righteousness. I certainly want to lead many more to righteousness than I've had the opportunity to do in the past. And I know that's true for all of us here at Beth Ariel. And with God's help, we'll be able to do that. But what an amazing passage, is it not? I apologize for taking so much time to go through it, but it's so, it's so, so big, just so difficult. But I pray you're encouraged that God is on the throne. He is in control. We can trust him and his word, and we can labor and serve him knowing 
God's blessing will rest upon us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for opening our hearts to the truth of Messiah. And thank you for enabling us to follow him in his ways. We would lift up the nations of the world. And we pray, Father, that many within these nations would not be enslaved by those spirits that would enslave them, but that they would be freed to see the truth of the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and find themselves embracing him as Lord and Savior. We would lift up our people, Israel, to you as well. The guardian Michael watches over them, but he who neither slumbers nor sleeps is always watching his people. And as the one who has Israel as the apple of his eye, we pray, Lord, your protective grace might always envelop them and surround them and encase them. We pray, Lord, that many more of our people would be wise and do exploits and fear your name and follow Messiah whom you have sent. And we pray, Lord, like John, that Messiah might soon come. May he return and establish his kingdom here on earth and bring an end to the Gentile dominance over your people and over our world. May the king of all kings come and establish his king of right, his kingdom of righteousness. That one who is Adonai Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. For it's in his name we pray.